Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. We're going to look at a couple of different passages. I've, I've tr- changed my um, aim for this sermon a bit uh, from what I had planned earlier in the week. Uh, so the title might not quite fit it, nor the quote on the front, but uh, they're still good. It's still a good quote on the front. Um, but uh, hopefully you all have an outline uh, because I want to read a large section from the Belgic Confession here in a moment, and um, that'll hopefully stimulate us and uh, help us to appreciate the gospel all the more, because that's really what uh, we want to happen here today. Well, we're going to read first Luke 18, 18 through 30, and then we're going to look at Luke 19, 1 through 10. Uh, we're we're going to look at two two different people, uh, both of them rich. Uh, the first, the ruler, rich young ruler, as he's often referred to in Scripture, uh, and also Zacchaeus, so one of, uh, of course, uh, every child's one of their favorite stories, so, and, uh, and, and adults as well. But let's hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Luke 18, uh, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And let's look over at uh, chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to to this house since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. Well, today I want to do something a little different 
Uh, I just want to give you a, a number of case studies. You see in your outline there some, some bad examples and some good examples. And uh, I was reading uh, some theology book this week and uh, really enjoying this book. And, and uh, it referenced the Belgic Confession, Article 21, or 22 actually. And uh, something there caught my attention and related to the sermon that I had bouncing around in my head as I was uh, meditating it on it all week. Um, and, I, and I would like to read that to you. Uh, I apologize for the small print in, the, in your outline. But this, these two passages that we just read and, and a few others uh, really highlight a point uh, that I found in the Belgic Confession that uh, really is just the gospel. And uh, these, these episodes from the life of Christ illustrate it for us. And, and I want that to be impressed upon you. And I'll show you what it is in just a moment as we read it. Here's the Belgic Confession, Article 21 on the atonement. And, and this uh, confession is one of the older confessions that we have, written in the 1500s. Um, was written during a time of great persecution in uh, Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, where the Catholic Church was persecuting the Protestants. And so uh, the author of this confession wrote it in order to show that they weren't bad people, that they actually did believe what the Scriptures taught. And so they put together these articles of faith to show uh, those in power, the king and, and others, that they were not uh, heretics, that they believed the truth of, of God's Word. It says here, Article 21, We believe that Jesus Christ is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, made such by an oath, and that he presented himself in our name before his Father to appease his wrath with full satisfaction by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood for the cleansing of our sins as the prophets had predicted. For it is written that the chastisement of our peace was placed on the Son of God and that we are healed by his wounds. He was led to death as a lamb. He was numbered among sinners and condemned as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, though Pilate had declared that he was innocent. So he paid back what he had not stolen, and he suffered the just for the unjust in both his body and his soul, in such a way that when he senses the horrible punishment required by our sins, his sweat became like big drops of blood falling on the ground. He cried, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he endured all this for the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore we rightly say with Paul that we know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. We consider all things as dung for the excellence of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find all comforts in his wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means to reconcile ourselves with God than this one and only sacrifice once made which renders believers perfect forever. This is also why the angel of God called him Jesus, that is, Savior, because he would save his people from their sins. We believe that for us to acquire the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith that embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits and makes him its own and no longer looks for anything apart from him. And that's the phrase that I want to highlight today. That the one who has embraced Christ as Savior no longer looks for anything apart from Him. Let me read on. 
For it must necessarily follow that either all that is required for our salvation is not in Christ, or if all is in him, then he who has Christ by faith has his salvation entirely. Therefore, to say that Christ is not enough, but that something else is needed as well, is a most enormous blasphemy against God. For it then would follow that Jesus Christ is only half a Savior. And therefore we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith apart from works. However, we do not mean, properly speaking, that it is faith itself that justifies us, for faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. But Jesus Christ is our righteousness in making available to us all his merits and all the holy works he has done for us and in our place. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him and with all his benefits. When those benefits are made ours, they are more than enough to absolve us of our sins. And that, my friends, is the gospel right there. We no longer need to look for anything apart from him. Now, we have a couple of examples here before us today of uh, someone who is looking for something else besides Christ to justify himself. And then we're finding another person in Zacchaeus who has found Christ and needs nothing else and actually left everything else behind. And we'll see other examples as well. But let's look first at this, this ruler uh, the ruler, it's, it's, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that we have a man who is very moral. He would have been an upstanding citizen. The word ruler is uh, uh, hard to figure out exactly what he was. Uh, that, that term is used uh, in reference to Nicodemus, who was in the Sanhedrin, the ecclesiastical ruling body of the day. So he might have been a member of the Sanhedrin. It's also used uh, for, for a civil judge. So in either case, this particular man uh, was an upstanding citizen, someone who was important in the community, and he was very moral. He says, and Jesus doesn't dispute him, that he kept all those commandments from the time he was very young, probably from the time of his bar mitzvah when he was 13 years old. So he, he took his religion very seriously. And, Jesus, and he asked Jesus a profound question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Perhaps he already thinks he knows the answer to that question. He just wants Jesus to affirm what he's doing. I'm, I'm following all these rules, and I want Jesus to say it to me so that I can be justified in myself. And so Jesus affirms that he is a righteous person, but says you still lack this one thing, Take all that you own and, and give it away. Give it away to the poor. And of course he goes away sad because he was very, very wealthy. So what Jesus is actually doing is exposing the fact that this man, though he kept uh, a lot of the commandments, because the commandments that are listed there are in the second table of the law, uh, those that deal with our relationship with man, but he doesn't mention the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's exactly what this, this man is doing. He is uh, an idolater. His money means more than following Jesus. He is trying to justify himself by works. He doesn't think he needs a savior. And Jesus is really exposing 
his need for a savior because he's an idolater. The most important thing in his life is his money. And he gives the man the opportunity to follow him, just like he, he uh, uh, addressed his disciples, come and follow me. He says that to this man, and he looks on him with sadness in the parallel passages in the other Gospels. It says that Jesus loved him and, and, and asked him this hard question, trying to help him see that he needs a Savior. See, the man didn't think he needed a Savior. He, he, he was righteous enough. He didn't really need Jesus. He just wanted to be justified in, in what he was doing. And Jesus says this interesting thing here. He says... In verse 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Um, it is because wealth can so easily be an idol. It, it can so easily become something that is more important than God to us. And so he points that out, and the disciples are amazed. They say, who can be saved if a rich person can't be saved? Now, that's kind of foreign to our ears to hear that because, you know, we've heard these stories and we know uh, Jesus' uh, attitude towards the poor and how he lifts them up and, and uh, sometimes we're, we're critical of those who are wealthy. Not always, be it granted. Uh, but their attitude, the common attitude of the day, was that if you had material blessings, if you were wealthy, rich, uh, that meant that you had God's favor. And so here we have someone who was an upstanding citizen, who was very righteous in his life, and he was wealthy. So the, the culture at large would have affirmed him as someone who's, who's no doubt, who no doubt is one of God's chosen. No doubt he's, he's, uh, he's in favor with God. But of course that's not the case. Well, thankfully Jesus says, verse 27... Who can be saved, the disciples asked. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And we see that with Zacchaeus, don't we? Here's a, a rich man who does find the Lord. So this, this poor man is seeking to justify himself, and he falls short um, because he is a sinner too. He needs a Savior, just like we all do. Well, another passage that I, I didn't read to you, but uh, another man in Luke... Luke chapter 10 asks Jesus the very same question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? A lawyer, uh, this is Luke 10, 25. Uh, what, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He asked Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then, of course, Jesus tells the famous uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, which really exposed what this, man, this man's attitude towards others really was. He was a Jew. And he would have looked down on Samaritans as unclean, sinful people. He would have been prejudiced. And Jesus is showing this man his sin. This man was trying to justify himself. He could have probably said the same thing that the ruler said. Well, I've kept all these commandments. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love my neighbor as myself. 
if, as long as you limit it to my people, not these other unclean people out there. And Jesus expands that commandment and shows them how far sh- short he's falling. See, he's trying to be justified in his works and in his heritage, who he is, that he's one of uh, the chosen. He's one of God's people. He's not one of these filthy Samaritans out there who, granted, were uh, theologically off a bit. They didn't believe uh, all the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, They were theologically in error. But as well, it was more racial, uh, uh, a racial problem that they had between Jews and Samaritans. So... This man was seeking to justify himself. See, he didn't need a savior. He wanted just for Jesus to say, yeah, you're doing great. Well done. But that's not what Jesus says. So there's two bad examples we have. See, they, these two men didn't need a savior. See, they didn't, they didn't look to Christ for salvation They were looking to themselves for salvation. They were looking at their works. They were looking at the blessings that they enjoyed. They were looking at their status in the community. They were looking at their heritage. All these things they were throwing up before God and saying, here's why you should accept me, God, because of all these things, of what I've done and who I am. Those are bad examples for us to follow because we can do the same thing, and many people do. I mean, I've had someone in the past several weeks say, well, I really am a good person. Well, relatively speaking, maybe so, but before God, as Jesus just said, no one's good but God. No one's good but God. Every human being that's ever lived except Jesus needs a Savior. Every one of us needs a Savior. Well, we see several other examples uh, of people who, who did discover what the Belgic Confession uh, is talking about. People who stopped looking at themselves and their works, their righteousness, their heritage, uh, their religious practice. They stopped looking at that and they looked completely to Christ to save them. And first we have Zacchaeus. Now, he's the polar opposite of this ruler. He was not an upstanding citizen. It tells us here that he was a chief tax collector. Not only was he a tax collector, but he was a chief tax collector, which meant that he was over the other tax collectors. So he was in cahoots with the Romans, and uh, he was in the practice of defrauding the people, the Jewish people, uh, Israel, uh, of money uh, in the name of of, uh, the Roman government, and he grew wealthy from this practice. You can kind of see his psychological profile because he was a short guy you know probably had a Napoleonic complex maybe everybody picked on him when he was younger and he said you know what I'm going to get power and he got power in the name of the Roman government and I'm sure he stuck it to all those people who looked literally looked down on him all of his life and so Zacchaeus uh, was told by everybody, I'm sure everybody that came and reluctantly paid taxes to him, that he was a filthy traitor sinner. So he didn't have to have anybody say, you know, you're a sinner. He was probably told that on a regular basis by many people who hated him. Well, he's found out about Jesus. 
And he wants to see who Jesus is. He's heard the stories. Jericho was an important crossroads in, uh, in the trade, so it was a place where you would, uh, you would have to pay taxes. And so he was, he was based there, and Jesus comes to town, and he wants to see him. So, of course, he climbs up in the tree so he can get a good glimpse of, of Jesus. And Jesus notices him and addresses him, hurry and come down, for I must stay at, I must stay at your house today. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that is the, the will of God coming, you know, to Jesus and him saying, yes, I, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. I must stay at your house today. There's a divine appointment happening in Zacchaeus' life. And so Zacchaeus did obey. He hurried, he came down, and most importantly, verse 6, he received him joyfully. He received him joyfully. Now, all of a sudden, Zacchaeus' life is transformed because he has found something, something that's worth more than all the money that he's collected, all the revenge that he's exacted on his opponents and everyone who's ever said that he was a, a, a sinner and a traitor and all those things. He has found the Lord, and Jesus affirms it. See, it's not that he gave all of his money away and that made Jesus say, well, well, by giving his money away he's saved. No. He received Christ joyfully. He was saved. And now all those things that used to be important to him aren't important to him anymore. He's been changed. And now he's going to give it all away. All those things that seemed once important, the money, the status, the power... Those were no longer important because he had found Christ. And that's all he needed. That's all he wanted. He no longer looked for anything apart from him, as the Belgic Confession says. Well, the disciples also are a good example uh, in the same vein as Jesus. You know, back to 1828, Peter said, when Jesus is talking about the wealthy, and uh, how hard it is for them to enter the kingdom of, of God. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And of course, that's true. That's what the disciples had done. I love the account in Luke 5 of the disciples uh, when they were there cleaning their nets after an all-night fishing expedition, and Jesus is there preaching on the shores of the, uh, of the, of the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, and they're hearing him preach, and Jesus gets in the boat so because the crowds are pressing around him. And then when he's finished speaking, he says, uh, go out and we'll catch a bunch of fish. And, of course, he's a carpenter. And, and they were fishermen. And they've been their whole lives fishing. And they've been cleaning their nets while they were sitting there. And, and I don't know if you've ever cleaned a net, but it's, uh, it's not fun. You've got to pick all the seaweed and out. And it's, it's tedious work. And they've spent all night fishing, they didn't catch anything, and now they've spent all morning hearing sermons and cleaning nets, and now Jesus wants them to go right back out. And then Peter says, we fished all night, we didn't find anything, but because you say so, we'll do it. I love that line, but because you say so, we'll do it. Now, he's a carpenter, what does he know about fishing? He didn't know anything about fishing. Oh, yes, he does, because he's God. He knows where the fish are. And, of course, they catch all these fish and they have to get another boat to, to get all the fish and they work hard to get the fish and when they come to the shore Jesus says 
follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they leave it all behind. All those fish. They just left them there. The boats, the nets, everything, and they followed Jesus. That's what Zacchaeus did. That's what the Belgic Confessions is talking about. They no longer look for anything apart from him. No longer look for anything apart from him. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul. I pointed this one out to you next week, last week. Paul, see, Zacchaeus was an unrighteous man. He knew he was a sinner. The rich young ruler was a righteous man. He, he didn't grasp that he, he needed a Savior. Paul was like that. He was not an unrighteous person. He was very righteous, as he tells us in Philippians 3. He could have had more confidence in the flesh than anybody else. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the greatest Hebrew there ever was. He could follow all the rules and laws, and he did it perfectly. It's what he says in Philippians 3. But as he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All that I had in my life, I just left it behind. Like the disciples, I left it behind. Like Zacchaeus, I let it go. And I follow Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish is actually a bad word. It's a coarse word. You know, the Belgian Confession uses the word dung. Some of the earlier translations uses the word dung. Well, that's, it's a coarse word for dung. To put it, I won't say anything more than that, but Paul is being very graphic here about his former life, all the righteousness that he had. He didn't need it anymore. All he needed was Christ. Well, all of these three examples, Paul, the disciples, Zacchaeus, they're all illustrations of the parables that Jesus told in Matthew 13 the pearl, and the treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Well, that's what they... Found, did it? They found the pearl of great price, and everything that they had. I mean, when you think about that poor, well, not, he's not a poor pearl merchant, but you know, he had spent his life collecting pearls and accumulating these things. And, and when he found that one, I mean, he sold it all for that one pearl. You know, he didn't have anything else but the pearl at the end of the day. But that's all he needed. That's all he all he wanted. And really, that's, that's what the gospel is, that we desperately need Christ and nothing else. We don't need morality. We don't need a heritage. We just need a couple of things. First of all, we need to recognize that we're sinners. See, that's where the, the ruler fell short. He didn't think he was a sinner. He was a righteous guy. He didn't need a savior. Recognize your need. Stop trying to justify yourself. There's great freedom in coming to the fact, to the place where you say, you know what, I'm a failure. I'm, I'm a moral failure. I fall short of God's standard of holiness. 
and I really need a Savior. And then embrace Christ fully and completely. And, and don't try to justify yourself, but look to Him by faith as your all-sufficient Savior. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in question two. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort, the comfort that you belong body and soul to Jesus Christ? Well, you need to know three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such a deliverance. So first, easy. You've got to recognize you're a sinner, your own sin and misery, and that even your best efforts are, as in the words of Isaiah, as filthy rags. You've got nothing to offer to God that would make him say, yeah, you're pretty good, I'll take you in. All we have is sin, and we need a Savior. And that has been provided for us. That's the second thing we need to know. How can we be delivered? Well, it's been done through Jesus Christ. Go back and read the first part of that Belgic Confession, and it describes it for us, what Jesus did. He bore the wrath of God for our sins on the cross. He died and he rose again to give us new life. Now the rest of our lives are just spent in gratitude like Zacchaeus. How did he show gratitude for the salvation? Well, he went back to all those people and he showed them the love of Christ that he had experienced by, by paying back even more than the law required to those folks that he had wronged in his life. He made restitution, that's one way. But there are many ways that we can show gratitude to God, mostly by giving ourselves to him completely and resting completely in him alone for salvation. May God open our eyes so we can see ourselves as we truly are so that we can see the Savior that is offered to us in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do pray that you would open our eyes and, and our hearts to the gospel and once again be refreshed in the knowledge that we are completely resting upon you for salvation. We're, we're at your mercy, Lord, and we need it. And Father, we pray that that would fill our hearts with the joy, the joy of knowing that you have gone to great lengths on our behalf so that you can have a relationship with us. And so, Lord, we pray that our lives will be filled with gratitude today as we worship you on, on your day and throughout the rest of this week and the rest of our lives as we live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.